I'll be following you today. Um, wherever you go, I will go, Taylor. Well, you know, late, remind me later on. You could even do it in the Q&A session or whatever. I'll probably do it later on today. Just to give you a little kind of a, uh, maybe a little reenactment of, uh, of what, what that looked like. Just, you know, to give the young men, uh, you know, some practical uh, knowledge of like how to, to, how to, to uh, see, see the, the, the possible one that you want to ask out on a date as she's making her way from one group of friends to another. So you just kind of get right in there and like, hi. Um, so well, again, I am uh, very privileged to, to be here this morning. Um, please pray for me. My, my voice might be starting to it might be starting to uh, cut, uh, work out. I mean, turn, starting to not work the right way. <clears throat> Getting a little hoarse, so if you could pray for me there. Um, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for your word that speaks to us of the, the fullness of your grace and of your mercy. We thank you, Lord, that you have modeled our marriages after the very pattern of the union that we have with Christ. Lord, help us then to consider uh, the foundations of that marriage, to, to revisit it, to have it revive our marriages, have it to renew our marriages, help us not to be complacent and, and, uh, and just take things for granted, but help us to ever keep the gospel before us so that we might enjoy the 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 fruit of the gospel, even through the very uh, joys and trials of our marriages. So would you bless your people as they hear, and would you bless me, Lord, uh, as I speak? I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, if you would open your, your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 5. Okay, great. Ephesians chapter 5, and just, just to give you a little bit of context here, you know, the Apostle Paul is, is giving the practical imperatives and applications of, of the first part of his letter, regarding um, our union with Christ and, and the grace that we have. And so he starts very generally uh, at the beginning of, of chapter 5. And I'm just going to start reading from, from verse 20 and then to, the, to uh, the end of the chapter. Here now the reading of God's word. Giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of, uh, to, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, 
that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water of the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of the body, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. And this is the reading of God's holy word. You know, when, when Taylor, Taylor and I were in our um, first, maybe second month of marriage, we were in a rush to go somewhere. Maybe it was, uh, maybe it was church. I, I, I don't completely remember the exact occasion, but, but I was, we were late. I was late. And, uh, and I was putting on nice clothes, putting on a nice pair of slacks and, and a dress shirt. And I was just doing it really fast. And we ran out the door. And, uh, and then we got to where, I'm, where we were going. And I stepped out of the car, you know, got my stuff together. And we were walking and making our way. And Taylor looked at me and just started laughing. She just started laughing uncontrollably. And I, I was scared. I was like, oh, did I forget to comb my hair? Like, I brushed my teeth. And you know, just checking to see if there was any, you know, kind of any boogers or whatever hanging out. And, and, uh, and then she pointed out that I'd forgotten uh, to put the first button on the wrong shirt. So it looked, you know, one, it was all misaligned after you, you messed that first button up. And all the, button, all the other buttons were misaligned because everything was off. And so the collar was off, the button on the bottom was off. I, I just looked a mess. It was a, the nicest shirt that I had, and I just looked a mess, no matter how I, I uh, looked at it. And, uh, and so it's amazing how getting that first button wrong messes everything else up. You know, that's the way it is with our marriages. Our marriages can be like that. If we get the first things wrong, then everything else is misaligned and gets messed up, and, uh, and you hobble the rest, for the rest of your marriage if some of those things are not aligned. And so there's no way to really fix. I mean, you can make it look, you can, you can realign some buttons, but if, unless you start from the first and go back up, you know, you'll always have some part of, of it a little off. And, uh, and so th this morning, I want to talk about that first button, that foundation uh, upon which aligns everything else in your marriage. Um, that if that foundation is off, everything else will be off and, you know, You'll be completely misaligned, or just things will be just not work out the way that that uh, you'd hoped, and what the scriptures teach. And so this morning, let's line up that first button by looking at the foundations of Christian marriage, from which everything else lines up. And then, uh, in the second part of my talk later, uh, we'll go more into detail about applying the, that, that foundation um, to the nitty-gritties of our Christian marriages. So the first component of a Christ-centered marriage is a Christ-centered life of faith. As I mentioned last night, the, the Lord commands us to marry only in the Lord and not to be unequally yoked. 
Why? Because marriage is a deep, mysterious, intimate union with each other as a reflection of our union with Christ. So how, we can get, how can we do that if we don't share that deep, fundamental reality of faith and life together in Christ? In other words, if Jesus is supposed to be the first and foremost in our faith and life, if faith in Christ is the absolute most important thing in our lives, how can we share the deepest conviction with someone who is not of the same faith? Someone who doesn't share that same deep faith and life with us, there will always be a misalignment. There will always be a hobbling in the marriage. Um, Kathy Keller, Tim Keller's wife, wrote a great little article on the Gospel Coalition website entitled, Don't Take It For Me, Reasons You Should Not Marry an Unbeliever. And she says, if you ignore God's word and are dating a non-Christian, you are already ignoring the Bible and you are already compromising your faith. Uh, let me be very clear. Um, I know that you know, there's, there, there are some differences of opinion, but I, I firmly believe the scriptures teach there is no such thing as missionary dating. There's missionary friendship, but not missionary dating. And like I was saying last night, if, uh, if you plan to have a, a dating relationship with someone, it, it has to have the core seeds of the possibility of a Christian marriage. And so why date someone in the first place and start to, to, to knit, knit your, your heart and your lives and your time and your aspirations? Why be, even begin to knit them together with someone if they are not already, have not put their faith in Jesus Christ. So, um, and, uh, and then, you know, sometimes, you know, I think, um, you know, there's a temptation, a tendency for, for some people to, to think that God is going to make an exception for you because you're so, this person is just so wonderful. They're almost there. They're just the nicest people. They're even, you know, they're, they're even nicer and sweeter and more sacrificial and more giving of their hearts and times than even the Christians I know. So God will make an exception for me. Um, and, then, and, and, uh, and already they're, they're, there's the compromising already there. Um, Kathy Keller gives three possible outcomes for when a believer marries an, an unbeliever. She says, first, if you want to be in sync with your spouse, the believer will have to push Christ to the margins of his or her life, right? If, if, for example, if you're a believer and you marry an unbeliever and the center can never be Jesus, you have to push him out in some way, functionally, out of the center of your marriage because the other person cannot reciprocate. Um, and, then, and then over the course of your marriage, it'll be a fight between pushing him further and further and further and further out of the, the, into the margins of your own life and your marriage. And that uh, you may not outright repudiate your faith, but everything that you want to do in order to follow Christ has to be negotiated or minimized. You can't go to church when you want or how you want. You can't go to all the Bible studies you want. You can't go to, or even tithing, like tithing and giving of, of offerings. You have to you have to negotiate that with your spouse. Um, and even raising your children, just think about that. Raising your children, you know, you have to negotiate that as well. Hospitality, 
Um, all of these things you have to negotiate to preserve the peace in the home. Secondly, if the believer wants to put Jesus at the center, then the unbelieving spouse will have to be marginalized. So you have to make a choice. You know, if you want Jesus to be at the center of your life, then you're going to have to start pushing your, your spouse. And, uh, and Keller, t- uh, Kathy Keller says this, the deep unity and oneness of a marriage cannot flourish when one partner cannot fully participate in the other person's most important commitments. And thirdly, the marriage will either experience stress and break up, or you experience stress and you stay together. Um, you end up compromising core values of your faith and, leaves, and it leaves both of you feeling lonely and unhappy. And in the end, Keller says this, an, un- an, equal, an unequal marriage is not just unwise for the Christian, it is also unfair for the non-Christian and will end up being a trial for them both. So the point is that, that your marriage union to your spouse ought to reflect the deep faith union that you have with Christ. And not to have that, that sin, that, that will, not, to, um, not to have that union with your spouse will be sin against the Lord and a deep compromise of your faith in Christ. Now, if in God's providence you are converted uh, after you married an unbeliever, then you should stay in your marriages unless the unbelieving spouse wants out. Or if your spouse, who you thought was a believer, turns out to not really be one, and he or she wants out, that's, that's possible too. Or if there's adultery, unrepentant abuse, or abandonment, separation, and divorce in certain cases will be warranted. Another aspect of this foundation is a Christ-centered life grounded in the truth of the Scriptures. The Scriptures are God's Word that gives us life. They breathe His grace into our lives. They tell us the the hard truths that we need to hear, and they lead us in life, a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path, in the darkness of this world. It's the sanctifying truth by which we measure everything in our lives, including our own life and conduct in our marriages. And Jesus compared um, two kinds of people. He, he, he compared two kinds of people in, in a parable. A wise person who hears his words and, and obeys them is like a, a wise man who built his house on a rock. A foolish person who hears his words but doesn't do them Uh, or or refuses to hear his word and will never be able to do them, is like a man who builds his house on sinking sand. So when the rainstorms of of sin and of life come to to put all the stress and and bring disaster uh, to wash away the the house, uh, the life that, that you're trying to build, the wise man's house will stand. It'll still continue to stand. But the foolish man's house built on sand washes away and will be gone. And, uh, and that's how we ought to think about building our marriages. If we don't build it on the solid rock of God's word and of his grace, then, then when trials and tribulations come, when sin and anger and result, resentment rain down on your marriage, if we didn't build it on God's word, it's going to fall at one point or another. So um, maybe one way to think about it is like if you if you buy, if you, if you have a, a, a uh, you buy a nice car, or you have a, you know, um, you, you buy something in which it's, it takes some work to understand how it works, um, 
when we buy a car or a computer, for example, it comes with an instruction manual that says, warning, read before operating, right? If God created marriage, then he knows how best marriages ought to function. And we would be remiss if we completely ignored it and, uh, you know, we're driving down the road on, on, on drive and all of a sudden we, 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 we want to make a stop somewhere. And so instead of pressing the brake, we put it right into reverse, you know, and you just hear your, your engine just fall right out of your car. You know, oh, I should have read the ma operating manual. You know, I, I think lots of times we, we de facto uh, operate our marriages just like that. We, 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 we don't consciously make the connection between what the scriptures teach. Uh, we think we know everything, right? And, and then we just go about our marriages, you know, um, just doing whatever feels right or what we think is right instead of consciously making those connections, really, really consciously and intentionally building our marriage relationship on the solid rock of God's word and of the gospel. And, uh, and so, um, so that's, that's something to really consider. The second component uh, to a Christ-centered marriage is a Christ-centered life of grace, right? This is the power, the source of a Christ-centered marriage. It's it's the Christ-centered context that frames the Christ-centered marriage. It's the overarching reality that helps us make sense of all other reality. It's the, it's the lens by which we ought to see everything else, including and especially our marriages. I think uh, last, uh, the, other, the other day, uh, Pastor Cotta said that, um, that Jesus ought to inform not just where we build our house, but, but the very way in which we build our house. I thought that was a very helpful way to think about it, that everything is of grace, right? If, if our marriages reflect our union with Christ, you know, is our union with Christ by works or is it by grace? Um, you know, I wonder if, if we put that kind of intentionality into it. And what are the ways in which I relate to my spouse that, that puts conditions, right? You have to earn, earn my happiness with you if you, if you, you know, speak to me this way, or if you do this, this, and this, and this for me, then I'll be happy with you, right? What does that sound like? I mean, we don't even, we don't, we don't relate to, to Jesus that way, or at least we shouldn't. So why do we relate to our spouses that way? Um, and sometimes we do that, I think, unintentionally because we haven't um, made those connections. You know, I think we, we have this idea that grace is for everything else except for me and my wife. And uh, so we have to put, we have to frame the story of the gospel and make it the story of our marriages. Again, God created Adam and Eve to be husband and wife, and he made us to leave mother and father and to cleave to our wives and become one flesh. And out of that marriage union, we were to multiply and be fruitful and do the work that God had called us to do as husband and wife. But Satan tempted Adam and Eve to disobey God and eat the forbidden fruit. In essence, Satan was tempting both Adam and Eve to adultery and idolatry by making themselves like God. This is why throughout the Old Testament, sin is always depicted as a kind of adultery and idolatry. And I really like sometimes, you know, in the English, that wordplay, adultery as idolatry and idolatry as adultery. 
Sin is when we worship and serve something or someone else other than God as our true husband or wife. This is why God told Hosea to marry a harlot. And just as, just as Gomer whores after other men, Israel whores after other gods, sin is cheating on God with another love. But the gospel is the good news that God can redeem even an unfaithful wife. He could turn a prostitute into a, a pure, faithful bride, clean, white, beautiful. And how did he do that? By becoming the perfect savior, a perfect suitor, the true prince charming, a humble servant who comes not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, to pay the marriage price, a redemption price to win a bride for himself, to wash her with the word, to cleanse her by his blood, to take her debt and pay the price, to give her an infinite account of righteousness and life, to suffer and to die for his bride, for you and for me. And after three days, rise again to give us that, that new resurrection life. And it's this gospel story of marriage that, becomes, that ought to become the gospel story through which we see everything we do in our lives. This is what Ephesians 22, and 20, 22 to 23, 33 is all about. It's Paul's way of teaching us how to see our marriage stories in light of the story of the gospel, to apply the gospel into the nitty-gritties of our relationship. It's the paradigm by which we live out our marriages through the lens of the gospels. And, and, and I'll get into that in a moment. And so what exactly does it mean to have a Christ-centered marriage? It means having Christ and the gospel as the principal and practical center of our lives. Not just a theoretical center, but a principal and practical center of our marriage lives. So let, let, so let me, look at, let me uh, kind of help you think a little bit about your own marriages um, and how a Christ-centered marriage, you know, what, what flows and how the gospel ought to function in our marriages. That Jesus and the gospel is the source. He's the source of our marriage, right? Jesus is not only the center at each of our lives, but as we come together, he's the, the source and the center of both of our lives together. It's putting Jesus there at the center of our lives. 1 Corinthians 1, 30-31 says this, He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Philippians 1.21, for, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Um, he is also the motive for everything in our marriages. Right? He is, his person and work become the motivation for everything we do, including our marriages here. We no longer live for ourselves, but for him and through him for others. 2 Corinthians 5, 7 to 9, uh, we walk by faith, not by sight. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim, our goal, our purpose to please him. Uh, I think it, it, I'll talk in a moment, but this radically ought to change the way that we relate to everybody, especially and including our, our spouses. Do we live to please our spouses? Right? <clears throat> are we more afraid of, of our spouses uh, than we are of God? Uh, or are we more eager to please our spouses more, more than God? Um, 
and then we thus we turn turn our spouses into uh, functional um, idols. He is <clears throat> uh, one one more one more verse Galatians two nineteen through the law I died to the law so that I, that I might live to God, and here the, the apostle Paul is a, applying the gospel to his life, and we can you can. Uh, apply this even to your own marriages. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He is also the goal for our marriages. What do you live for? Right? What, what, what is the purpose of your life and of your marriage? What is the goal is it to be happy, to do what you want to do, and, and, and go, you can add God in, and he'll be the icing on, on, on the cake? Right? Or is it to live for the glory of God in all that you do? Right? There's a reason why the Shorter Catechism begins with the very first question, what is the chief end of man for which you can replace? What is the chief end of our marriages? Right? What is the chief end of man even in our marriages? Right? It's to glorify God and to enjoy him forever together in that way. This is, the, this is essential for marriage because if we don't see the glory of God in Christ as the goal of our marriages, then we will wander from him and from one another. Again, as I'd mentioned before, you need to punch in a destination in order to get from A to B in your GPSs. If you are not putting the glory of God Right? The glory of God in all that you do and all that you are in your marriages, um, <clears throat> you will get lost. Or you'll, go, you'll, you'll take the scenic route all the way to the glory of God uh, if, uh, because you, haven't, you have not intentionally put the glory of God um, functionally and principially as the, the, uh, the goal of your marriage. And... Uh, what ends up happening, too, is that if, if both, both husband and wife have not agreed upon the glory of God as the heart and the goal of the marriage, then, you know, your, then what happens, I think, is your individual inner GPSs will start, you'll start wandering and meandering away from each other as well. Right? I think that was part of, part of the reason why Adam and Eve both sinned. They both sinned in different ways, but that first sin. Uh, because of that first sin. And so that's how marriages can fizzle and fall apart. This is why adultery doesn't begin with just meeting somebody. See, sometimes we think adultery begins when we meet, when we meet somebody that, that, uh, that the, person, the person commits adultery with. No, it happens way before that. Uh, when, I, when I counsel uh, young couples um, before marriage, I tell them, you know, it's, it's, I tell the men particularly, it is not enough simply not to, not to look or lust after another woman. That, that, the negative part, that's good, but that is not enough to stay faithful to your wife. You have to love your wife positively. And you have to have a, a relationship that is so rich and full and satisfying and joyful to the glory of God so that any other temptation becomes not a temptation because you're so, so in love with your wife that, that any other woman just, you know, is just any other woman. There's no temptation there. You have to have both. 
And, um, and you can only do that really functionally when, when you guys both have the glory of God as the heart and the center and the goal um, of your marriage. And, um, and so adultery begins in the heart. And the only way you can really satisfy, and here's the, here's the, uh, the paradox, if you will, not... Um, the paradox is that the more, the more you want to bring to to be, to satisfy and to bring joy and happiness to your spouse, is when you point them to 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 their enjoyment in Christ, to their enjoyment to the, their true heavenly spouse in Christ, because you'll always fall short, right? If they if you, they look to you to, for happiness, you will always fall short. You'll never be enough to, to fully satisfy the deep longings of your spouse's heart. But if you, if, but if you give them Jesus, uh, then, then he will give them that deep satisfaction. And, um, and then, then there won't be that little empty space in, in your spouse's heart to be open to... Uh, an interloper to another person. Um, so, why are we married? Why do we get married? Is it for our happiness and joy first and God comes second, or is it seeking first God's glory and his righteousness, and then he'll add everything else unto us? When God is not the glory, the goal, or the glory for which we live in our marriages, then something else is going to be and that something else is going to be an idol, a counterfeit God, an interloper, an adultery. Um, for us, between us and God and with each other. We mess up our marriages because we turn our marriages into ends in themselves. We forget the true purpose and goal for our marriages. Uh, like everything else in life, to glorify and enjoy Him. But when we forget that, um, that's when, when our buttons get misaligned. We turn our marriage, we turn marriage or, or happiness or filling our needs uh, as the goal and the priority. And when our marriages can't sustain the burden or the weight of what only what God can do, then of course our marriages are going to fall apart. Or we're going to be able to, we're going to tamp down uh, all of our ex- uh, expectations and we're just going to be like, okay, well, this, we're going to relegate our, our marriages to be like, okay, well, um, I'm just going to have to live with it this way. Um, John Piper says this, the most foundational thing to see from the Bible about marriage is that it is God's doing, and the ultimate thing to see from the Bible about marriage is that it is for God's glory. Those are the two points that I have to make. Most foundationally, marriage is the doing of God, and ultimately, marriage is the display of God. When people look at your marriages, we are, we are, we, our marriages become living parables of the gospel, unto the glory of God. And, um, and so we, wanna, we want to reflect it as, as intentionally uh, and as faithful as we can. And um, when we start to tell a different story in our marriages is uh, when our marriages begin to wander and stray. The third essential component of a Christ-centered marriage is a Christ-centered framework of life. This is the overall framework of applying the gospel to our marriages. Let me outline um, from uh, 
verse uh, Ephesians 5, the deep mystery of marriage. This is the, the, the framework. This is the, the way in which we ought to look at everything in our lives. Um, so first, first, Paul calls wives to a Christ-exalting love and submission to their husbands as unto the Lord. Now, the context of Ephesians 5 is Paul's application of the gospel to various relationships in our lives. He tells us how to live as God's children, to walk in love just as Christ loved us and gave himself for us. That means submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Then he applies to marriage and he says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Now this isn't some kind of oppressive, chauvinistic kind of submission, but a willing, love-based, grace-empowered submission. And here, here, brothers and sisters, it is not to, for, for sisters, it is not to our husbands for their own sake. Uh, you, you're not called to submit to your husbands for their own sake because they're wiser or smarter or stronger or better. You submit to your husbands as unto the Lord. In other words, it's under the greater lordship of Christ. And, uh, and I'll, I feel like I'm going ahead of myself. I'm talking about a little bit into our next talk. But, but, um, but husbands, as you submit to Christ and you're following Christ's lead, then when your wives submit to you and follow your lead, both of you guys will be submitting and following Christ. Do you see that? And so it is in that context that Paul is calling wives to submit and to follow their husbands. And, uh, and so that submission is grounded in love and grace, not in power and in oppression. I really appreciated, again, Pastor Cotta's uh, uh, comments there. And this is why Paul says, now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And then he calls husbands to a Christ-exemplifying love and leadership toward their wives. And here Paul applies the gospel to husbands where, where Jesus is the model, the example of what it means to be a husband and what it means to love and lead his wife. He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. This means loving them in three gospel-centered ways. First, you love her with a sacrificial love, which means like Jesus, he was the Son of God who humbled himself and became a man and came not to be served but to serve and to give his life for the benefit and blessing of many. God calls husbands to lay down their lives for the benefit of their wives. Just to, uh, to, be, to serve and not to be served. Uh, he also calls husbands to love your wives with a sanctifying love, to help her grow more and more like Jesus. This is what Jesus did for us in sanctifying us, cleansing us by the washing of water with the word to present us to himself in splendor without spot or blemish. How did Jesus do that? He died for us. He shed his blood for us. He suffered, bore his cross for us, and died for our sins. This means loving her with Christ-like actions and attitude, sacrificing for her and humbling uh, himself for to serve her so that she might grow in Christ-likeness. Um, people say that, that married couples take on each other's characteristics, clothing, mannerisms, actions. And so when you become more like Jesus, Here's the interesting thing is that when you become more like Jesus with your sanctifying love for her in, 
in, in, in making it a priority in your marriage to have her grow in holiness, um, then you will begin to take on each other's characteristics, not, not in, in an earthly way, right, in terms of hair and clothes, but in, in the way that really counts for eternity, which is like Jesus. Like Jesus. Um, and then thirdly, you love her with a satisfying love, a love that nourishes and cherishes her. Paul says, in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, he loves his wife, lo- uh, loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because our, we are members of his body. This is, this is the great application of the commandment to love, to love one another, Jesus says, as I have loved you. This means providing and nourishing her in her needs as you do for your own body because that's what Jesus does for us as his body. When the two of you become one flesh, your, your well-being is bound up in her well-being. Think of all those things that you long for, intimacy, joy, security, health, peace, companionship, community. As you provide them for your wife, you provide them for yourself. Um, you know, it's, uh, so, um, so the more you, you, uh, you, you seek to love your wife in a way that helps her existentially and experientially being satisfied, both in body and in soul, you, you um, are contributing to the, the own satisfaction in your marriage. And finally, there is the deep mystery of marriage. It's and what that is, is the leaving, and the, cle- the leaving of father and mother to cleave, Paul quotes uh, Genesis, and, to, and the two shall become one flesh. And this is the great mystery of marriage uh, between Christ and his bride, the church, and how it ought to be reflected in our marriages. This, it reveals to us and to the whole world the gospel of our salvation in Christ, that he is one with us by grace, to forgive us of our sins and to reconcile us to God, to renew us in holiness for an eternity of glory with Him. And so as we'll see in my next talk, that the gospel of grace ought to be the paradigm by which we live and move and have our being in our marriages. It should inform the way that we see each other, the way that we fight and forgive each other, the way we grow in union, the way we love each other, then your marriage, centered in the gospel, grounded and founded in Christ, exemplified by his love and grace, will shine the gospel so brightly that everyone, your spouse, your children, your family, your friends, your community, they will see how much Jesus loved you and gave himself for you to be one with him forever. Every God-glorying Glorifying marriage ought to sing the grace of God in the gospel. And I want to help you sing as loudly as possible for those who are around you. Um, and so, so Taylor finally pointed out my misaligned buttons to me, and I looked down at my shirt, and it was all disheveled and messy. And it didn't matter how nice my shirt was. It didn't matter how put together the rest of me was. I had nice pants. I had patent leather shoes. Uh, I, and I did comb my hair and, you know, when it wasn't as gray as it is now. I looked a mess and 
because I misaligned that first button, uh, I, I, I couldn't just fix one. I decided to, so to undo it all and then realign the buttons one by one. And, and this is what we have to do in our marriages. It's our foundational theology that can be misaligned. If it's not quite right, then everything else gets uh, disheveled. And so I hope that you will regularly check that the buttons of your marriage is all aligned that the foundations of your marriage are solid and Jesus is at the very center of it all. When everything is aligned and put together, everyone can see Jesus, not only in us, but in the very fabric of our marriages. And one, one day, I think one day, one day you will be responsible because, because think, of, think of your spouse as God's gift to you. And that you are, for a time, being stewards of a child of God to prepare them for a life of glory, to be accepted and received by the Lord on that day of judgment. And, uh, and you want to do the best job you can so that you can, you can you know, boast in the Lord and present your spouse and say, Lord, I did the best I could. And... and uh, and I, and I know you'll be pleased because I did it by faith and I did it the Jesus way. Um, and then, you know, I hope one day you'll, you'll you look forward to those words. You know, you've been, you've been faithful over little. You've been faithful over much. Now enter into the joy of your master. You did a good job with your spouse. You, you know, your wife is, is, is so Christ-centered, so glorifying to me. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Now, those are the words we want to hear. And it begins with the foundations of what our marriages ought to be. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for this deep mystery and the deep privilege to proclaim in a living parable, as a living story of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Help us to do that more clearly, more deeply, more filled with grace and love and, uh, and sacrifice so that one day you would be you will be proud of us, that you would be pleased with us as we boast in you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.